from the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. Welcome to From the Catbird Seat, a poetry podcast from the Poetry and Literature Center at the Library of Congress. I'm Ann Holmes, the Center's Digital Content Manager. This is the eighth and final episode of our first season. If you're just tuning in, you can, of course, still go back and listen to the first seven episodes, and we hope you do. Here's a little about what we've been up to this season. Each week, we've listened to archived recordings of celebrated poets reading and discussing their work here at the library. For this first season, we've explored some of the library's signature events from the last five years, and we've hosted a bunch of special guests who took us behind the scenes of those events. All of the featured event recordings from this season are available as video webcasts on the library's website. We decided to end our first season of From the Catbird Seat much like we began it, with a celebratory inaugural occasion. Just three Septembers before Tracy K. Smith walked out onto the stage of the Coolidge Auditorium for the first time as Poet Laureate, Charles Wright had opened his laureateship in the same tradition. Last spring, the Poetry and Literature Center staff took a road trip down to Charlottesville, Virginia to catch up with Charles Wright. After a little prodding, he opened up about his year in the catbird seat, starting with that opening reading in September 2014. Before we listen to some highlights from that event, here are some reflections from the laureate himself in conversation with Rob Casper. Uh, so the purpose of this conversation is simply to introduce people to uh, the selections from the opening reading you did as Poet Laureate, Consultant in Poetry. So I thought we'd take the opportunity to talk a little bit about your laureateship, what it was like and what it meant to you. And maybe you could begin by just telling the story of how you reconsidered the laureateship. Well, you're all having so much fun at the Southern uh, Writers Conference reading the year before. I said, hell, maybe I'll do this, you know? And so I thought it was time anyhow. if I was ever going to do it, and my wife wanted me to do it, so therefore I did it. Yeah, yeah. What do you remember of that first reading? Uh, a lot of people there, and uh, of course the spontaneous standing ovation at the end, I will never forget. That's a joke. <laughs> um, although I did have one. And uh, it just seemed to go well, you know. You do, I've done, as everybody has, hundreds and hundreds of readings. And mostly they all go okay, you know. But some of them go better than others, and this was one of the really good ones, I thought. It seemed to be, people seemed to want to be there. They hadn't been frog-marched in from class (laughs) to hear it, you know, and that sort of thing, and they seemed to be, wanting to be there, and everybody was very intent, and uh, it was just a good time, was, you know, if you can have a good time at a reading, but I, th- I thought it was okay, and then, of course, once I get 
to doing stuff. I don't like being in front of people. But of course, as soon as I get up there in front of people, the ham in me takes over. And I, uh, I start enjoying it, start, start winging comments and things like that. And that usually goes okay. Yeah. And uh, I remember I used one dirty word, which was then bleeped out of my thing when I heard it. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Well, we are uh, the Library of Congress. Come on. <laughs> They've never heard son of a bitch before. <laughs> yeah. But yes, I did, I did say that, and I've regretted it to this day. <laughs> <laughs> Have you done a lot of readings that covered the range of your work in that way? No, usually you always read the, the latest thing you've done. You know, everybody does that. And uh, I did start farther back at your suggestion, which was a good suggestion because it seemed to really work out well. And uh, no, I, I usually don't, but I remember I started with, I can't remember what it was, I guess it was uh, Mount Caribou at night or something like that. Uh, or maybe it was self-portrait, anyhow. Um, and then I, I went through a bunch of books, you know, cherry picking here and there, hoping to find one that would work for the audience. You, know, you never know. You know I'm, I don't have any funny stuff. I mean, Jesus, my friend James Tate, Jim Tate, could, you know, he could, he could make a baboon laugh. I mean, he, just, he was fabulous to get up there. and The poems were funny. I don't know if his commentary was funny, but the poems were always so funny. And uh, But once I get into it, it usually goes okay. One time, I remember in a reading, when I was a child, I had this stammer because I was always so hyped up, I would get ahead of myself. And then there'd come a time when I wanted to say something and I knew what I wanted to say, but I couldn't get it out, you know? Mm -hmm. And by golly, it came back to me at the age of whatever, 40-something, and I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't get it out. So I kind of circled it and said, you know, I used to do this when I was a kid, and then I'd have to sneak up on it the way I am now, and then, and then I got to do it. I got it going, but I was just amazed that it came back after, you know, 40 years. Yeah. And uh, don't stammer much anymore. Do you think that experience is analogous to what it means to write a poem? That kind of circling around what you mean to say, but you get ahead of? Uh, you just made that up, didn't you? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. It sounded good. It sounded good. What do you think? I think it sounds like a bunch of crap. But, uh, <laughs> no, I don't know. I guess, I guess you could say that. Uh, hmm. Well, you do circle around, you know, until you get what you want to say, and then you sort of bulldoze on through, mm -hmm. or slide on through, or sleep on through, or however you, you go through. And uh, so, yeah, maybe so. I mean, I, I say that in part because it was fun to say, but also because your poems do have uh, such a dynamism to their movement. You know, I mean, visually, rhetorically, in terms of how you sort of build image after image after mm -hmm. image. I remember being struck by that right away. 
when I first read Bloodlines. Well, yeah, I, I do image. I go from image to image. That's because I can't tell a story. So there's no narrative storyline in, in most of my poems. There are always stacks of images leading, I hope, from the first one to the last one. But the storyline isn't very overt. It's always just sort of under the poems. And, uh, and I am visual because I don't really have much to say, but I can look and describe what I see, you know. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly I realize I do have a lot to say, but it comes out through the images and not, 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 not a story. And uh, I don't know, I've always said it was a kind of sotto narrativa, an under narrative in my, that's in my poems. And uh, every once in a while, it'll come out, come up, and then it'll go back to the more images, and then it'll come out back to more images. But after a while, you realize that the images are the story. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and you thank God for that. I was struck when you were the laureate and when you did interviews um, at how you promoted a sense of humility about poetry. Uh, like you said, uh, um, you were very willing to talk about how much you loved it and how much it changed your life, how indebted you were to it. And I also felt that for younger poets and readers of poetry, having that kind of humility um, come from the Poet Laureate was instructive. Well, you know what they say. Well, he's really humble, you know, and another person, he's got a lot to be humble about, you know, so that's part of it. <laughs> uh, you hope it's instructive. I, I, my problem is I don't like telling anybody what to do. I do not, and I've been a teacher for 50 years, for God's <laughs> sakes. I try not to tell them what to do. I tell them what they might be happier doing than what they were doing at the time. Uh, but, you know, you have to be in the, in the face of the power of poetry. you got to be humble, you know, otherwise you'll get run through with a stob. Uh, you can't, you know, poetry's king and you're just a jester. <laughs> so you, uh, you pay homage to it. Mm -hmm. and uh, do the best you can. Do you think of the position differently having done your stint? Well, I guess I have to say yes, although I think my stint was different from most people's stint, except maybe Louise Glick's. And... Uh, but yeah, I, I think of it as, as a, a little differently. I'm glad I did it, you know, and I wasn't sure I would be glad I did it at all. But I, but I, I was glad to have done it. And uh, hell, I'd do it again, you know, if I could do it the same way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah. So... Let's put 30 to that. <laughs> That's the perfect end. That perfect ending is the perfect introduction to Charles Wright's opening reading. 
So let's sit back and listen to some poems from that occasion. This poem is called Mount Caribou at Night. Mount Caribou is a mountain up in Montana, northwest Montana, which can be seen from the place we go in the summer. My last book was called Caribou, which was supposed to have a picture of a mountain on it. But they sent me all those horns, and I said, well, it's a nice picture, so what the hell, let's use it. Uh, since the titles of my poems have very little to do with the poems, then the cover of my book can have little to do with the poems themselves, too. There's a little story behind this. The Yak Valley in northwest Montana is at 4,000 feet, and it really gets cold up there in the winter. This was told to me. I have no idea it was true. But uh, years ago, a man named Walter Smoot died up there. And uh, he was one of the very early settlers, and nobody would bury him because they all disliked him intensely for some reason. So a couple of people, three people, I think, sat around drinking and said, what are we going to do with old Walt, for God's sakes? And I said, I don't know. I hate that son of a bitch. You know, what are we going to do? And finally, one guy, John Phelan, said, oh, hell, I'll bury the son of a bitch. Let's go. So they went to this little bench, which eventually became the official cemetery for the area. And John started digging and started digging and started digging. The ground was frozen solid, of course. He was digging and digging, and I guess the whiskey started to wear off a little bit. And he said, that's it. I've had it. Let's bury him right here. We'll bury him seated up. <laughs> so they stuck him in there and put his head down over his knees and put the dirt on top of him, and there lies Walter Smoot to this day. Mount Caribou at night. Just north of the Yak River, one man sits bolt upright, a little bonnet of dirt and bunch grass above his head. Northwestern Montana is hard relief, and harder still the lying down and the rising up. I speak to the others there, lodged in their stone wedges, the blocks and slashes that vein the ground, and tell them that Walter Smoot, starched and at ease in his bony duds under the tamarack, still holds the nightfall between his knees. Work stars, drop by inveterate drop, begin Cassiopeia's sails and electric paste across the sky. And down toward the cadmium waters that carry them back to the dawn, they squeeze out Andromeda and the whale, everything on the move, everything flowing and folding back and starting again. Star slick, the flaking and crusting duff at my feet, smoot and runyon and august bender still in the black pulse of the earth, cloud gouache over the tree line, Mount Caribou massive and on the rise and taking it in. And taking it back to the future we occupied and will wake to again ourselves and our children's children snug in our monk's robes pushing the collie hoods back, ready to walk out into the same night and the meadow grass, in step and on time.
This is a, a longer poem, not that long, 41 pages. <laughs> uh, it's called California Dreaming, which is the last poem I wrote before we left California to come to Virginia over 30 years ago. Of course, the title is from a very famous song by the Mamas and Papas from the 60s called California Dreaming. We are not born yet, and everything's crystal under our feet. We are not brethren, we are not underlings. We are another nation living by voices that you will never hear, caught in the net of splendor of time to come on the earth. We shine in our distant chambers. We're golden. Mid-morning and Darvon dustfall off the Pacific stuns us to ecstasy. October sun stuck like a tack on the eastern drift of the sky. The idea of God on the other, body by body, rinsed in the Sunday prayer light, draining away into the undercoating and slow sparks of the West, which is our solitude and our joy. I've looked at this ridge of lights for six years now and still don't like it. Strung out like Good Friday along a cliff that easters down to the ocean, a dark wing with ruffled feathers as far out as Catalina, fallen from some sky, ruffled and laid back by the wind, Santa Ana that lifts its hot breath on the neck of everything. What if the soul indeed is outside the body? A little rainfall of light moistening our every step, prismatic, apotheosisic. What if inside the body another shape is waiting to come out, white as a quilt, loose as a fever, and sways in the easy tides there? What other anagogue in this life but the self? What other ladder to paradise but the smooth handholds of the rib cage? High in the palm tree, the Orioles twitter and grieve. We twitter and grieve. The spider twirls the honeybee who twitters and grieves around in her net, then draws it by one leg up to the fishbone fern leaves inside the pepper tree, swaddled in silk, and turns it again and again until it is shining. Some nights when the rock and roll band next door has quit playing and the last helicopter has thronked back to the marine base and the dark lets all its weight down to within a half inch of the ground, I sit outside in the gold lame of the moon as the town sleeps and the country sleeps like flung confetti, confetti around me and wonder just what in the hell I'm doing out here so many thousands of miles away from what I know best. And what I know best has nothing to do with Point Conception or Avalon and the long erasure of ocean out there where the landscape ends. What I know best is a little thing. It sits on the far side of the simile, the like that's like the like. Today is sweet stuff on the tongue. The question of how we should live our lives in this world will find no answer from us this morning. Sun flick, 
the ocean humping its back beneath us, shivering out wave after wave we fall from and cut through in a white scar of healed waters. Our wetsuits gloss slick as seals, our boards grown sharp as cries. We rise and fall like the sun. Ghost of the muse and her dog's body suspended above the beach November 25th, sun like a valium disc, smog like rust in the trees. White hooded and friar backed, a gold choir eyeballs the wave reach. Invisibly piston, the sea keeps it up, plunges and draws back, plunges and draws back, yesterday hung like a porcelain cup behind the eyes. Sonorous vowels, insistent extremities, the worm creeping out of the heart. Who are these people we pretend to be, untouched by the setting sun? They stand less stiffly than we do and handsomer, first on the left foot and then the right. Just for a moment we see ourselves inside them, peering out, and then they go their own way and we go ours back to the window seat above the driveway, Christmas lights in the pepper tree, black Madonna gazing out from the alianthus, chalk eyes downcast, heavy with weeping and bitterness, her time has come round again. Piece by small piece, the world falls away from us like spores from a milkweed pod, and everything we have known and everyone we have known is taken away by the wind to forgetfulness. Somebody always humming, California dreaming. This is called Under the Nine Trees in January. Uh, in, my, in our backyard in Charlottesville, at one time there were 21 fruit trees planted by the people who had fixed the house up before us and sold it to us. But apparently, one of them had been kind of nasty to the uh, people who were putting the trees in and the lawn and the landscape in back there. And so they put all the fruit trees inside coffee cans and, and planted them. So one by one, they all died. We went from 21 to 9, and then we went down to none. But I got in there when there were still nine. And uh, that's what this point is about. Last night's stars and last night's wind are west of the mountains now and east of the river. Here, under the branches of the nine trees, how small the world looks. Should we lament in winter our shadow solitude, our names spelled out like snowflakes? Where is it written? The season's decrease diminishes me. Should we long for stillness, a hush for the trivial body washed in the colors of paradise, dirt-colored, water-colored, match-flame, and wind-colored? As one who has never understood the void, should I give counsel to the darkness, honor the condor's wing? Should we keep on bowing to an inch of this and an inch of that? The world is a handkerchief. Today I spread it across my knees. Tomorrow they'll fold it into my breast pocket, 
white on my dark suit. This is called Bedtime Story. The generator hums like a distant dong and zeek. It's early evening and time, like the dog it is, is hungry for food. And we'll be fed, don't doubt it. We'll be fed, my small one. The forest begins to gather its silences in. The meadow regroups and hunkers down for its cleft feet. Something is wringing the rag of sunlight inexorably out and hanging. Something is making the reeds bend and cover their heads. Something is licking the shadows up and stringing the blank spaces along, filling them in. Something is inching its way into our hearts, scratching its blue nails against the wall there. Should we let it in? Should we greet it as it deserves, hands on our ears, mouths open? Or should we bring it a chair to sit on and offer it meat? Should we turn on the radio? Should we clap our hands and dance the something dance, the welcoming something dance? I think we should, love. I think we should. Shadow and Smoke. I attribute this thing to Che Guevara because that's where I read it, but it seems to me it's got to be a Japanese coin from at least two to three thousand years ago. Live your life as though you are already dead, Che Guevara declared. Okay, let's see how that works. <laughs> Not much different as far as I can see. The earth, the same paradise it's always wanted to be. Heaven as far away as before. The clouds the same old movable gates since time began. There is no circle. There is no sentiment to be broken. There are only the songs of young men and the songs of old men, hoping for something elsewise. Disabuse them in their ignorance, Lord. Tell them the shadows are already gone, the smoke already cleared. Tell them that light is never a metaphor. And the poem I always close my readings with, <laughs> I've never read it before in my life. <laughs> but it seems like I should close it with this. It's called Lullaby. I've said what I had to say as melodiously it was given to me. I've said what I had to say as far down as I could go. I've been everywhere I wanted to but Jerusalem, which doesn't exist. So I guess it's time to depart, time to go, time to meet those you've never met, time to say goodnight. Grant us silence, grant us no reply, grant us shadows and their cohorts, stealth across the sky. Thank you all very much. Thank you for joining us this season on From the Catbird Seat. To learn more about poetry past, present, and future at the Library of Congress, visit us at loc.gov poetry. 
You can watch or listen to the full events featured on today's episode by going to loc.gov discover and clicking on video webcasts. We'll be back soon for another season. Stay tuned. This has been a presentation of the Library of Congress. Visit us at loc.gov.